0: Up until the actual ceremony, uh, every wedding day will look a little different for the bride than it looks for the groom. So at least that's how it worked for Kate and me on our wedding day. Kate woke up really early, I think she got up at 6am, and she drove in the pouring rain to meet her bridesmaids for the very first preparations of the day. So each of the bridesmaids, they got their hair filled with clips and filled with spray And they got their faces painted with mascara and blush. And then, after all this, the bride has to don her dress. Yes, this is the article of clothing that she has has spent days choosing, that she has spent hours getting tailored, and that she will wear only one time for a couple. And meanwhile, the groom, myself, I stayed up late the previous night around the bonfire with the groomsmen. I slept in probably until 9 o'clock that morning. I wore sweatpants to breakfast with the groomsmen. Uh, We went back to the house, just kind of chatted it up for a couple hours. We helped set up the church a little bit, and I put on my suits probably an hour before the ceremony. So just a little bit different of days up until the ceremony. Now, I don't know what your wedding looked like. I don't know what your dream wedding would look like. But I can tell you what's not a good idea. Now, let's say the bride goes all out. She's a beautiful dress, fancy hair, perfect makeup. She's got that something old, something borrowed, something new, something blue. She is to the nines. And she walks down the aisle to meet her soon-to-be husband. But before she sees her husband, she can smell her husband. Because her husband, her soon-to-be husband has not bathed in a week. Her soon-to-be husband even reeks of alcohol. He hasn't run a comb through his hair. He's wearing a cut-off T-shirt with vomit stains on it. He's wearing basketball shorts with holes in them. And he's wearing, to top it off, flip-flops. Now, there, I know there's a disparity between the bride and the groom on every wedding day, but can you see how this might be a problem? Now, at this point in Leviticus, God has come down to the camp of his people. He has taken up residence in the tabernacle. He's filled it with his glory. And the sight of this is so glorious and majestic and filled with splendor that it causes the people to shout for joy. It causes them even to fall on their faces. And yet, two of those people, priests even, naming, names are Nadab and Abihu, they are like the hungover and disheveled group. They stroll casually into the place where God is specially present. And their negative example prompts God to give the instructions of chapters 11 to 15 of Leviticus. And we can sum up God's purpose in these instructions like this. It's printed on the back side of your bulletin. God tells his people how they will be fit for his presence through instructions that remind them of what he's done for them and how he's called them to live. God tells his people how they will be fit for his presence through instructions that remind them of what he's done for them and how He's called them to live. We'll walk through Leviticus chapters eleven through fifteen in four stages. First, we'll quickly define a few terms. Second, we'll take an overview at these instructions in these chapters. Third, we'll explain God's purposes behind these instructions, and finally, we'll unpack the relevance of these chapters. And so by the end of our time, my prayer is that God would make us in awe of his grace in Christ, that though God dwells in unapproachable light, as we sung earlier, that Christ can make anyone fit for God's presence. It's my prayer that we'll see that though we are unclean in ourselves, we can be made clean before God, and we can actually walk cleanly after him. So, Let's start with a few definitions, okay? So before talking about any subject, especially a difficult subject, you should make sure you know what you're talking about. Especially if it's a contentious one, you're talking with somebody else. You should be on the same page. You should define your terms. So I want you to open to Leviticus chapter 11. It's on page 88, the Bible in front of you. I don't really help you to have it open because it might be lost if it's not. Leviticus chapter eleven, and when you got it, I want you to glance over the chapter, just over the first few paragraphs, even, and I want you to see if you can spot a couple of words that repeat. We do this often on Wednesday nights, and we came up with two. There are two words that repeat a lot in this chapter. Survey says we are looking for clean and unclean. These are two words that come up a lot in Leviticus 11, and we're gonna toss in one more really important word in this chapter. Not because it repeats so much, although it does, but especially where it's placed. It comes up at the end in verses 44 and 45. You see it four times in those verses. It's the word holy. So these are the most important concepts not just in this chapter, but really in all of Leviticus 11 to 15. Clean, unclean, and holy. Now a good introduction to these concepts actually comes in the chapter before, in chapter 10, verse 10, which says you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. So think of it like this. Now two major categories two major categories that define all the people and all the stuff in Israel. You have the holy and you have the common. Now, the holy is what is set apart for and close to God. The holy is what is set apart for and close to God. The common is everything else. Now, underneath the common are two subcategories, clean and unclean. The clean is what is pure, what is whole, and what is associated with life. Pure, whole, associated with life. That's the clean, one of the subcategories of the common. Now, only what is clean can be sanctified or set apart or made holy. So to be clean is to be fit to come into God's presence. All that is unclean, the other subcategory of what is common, All that is unclean is what is impure, disordered, or associated with death. Impure, disordered, or associated with death. Just a quick clarification. Not everything that is sinful is unclean. I mean, sorry. Not everything everything that is unclean is sinful. But everything that is sinful is unclean. So just because something is classified as unclean doesn't necessarily mean it's sinful. However, all that's unclean is meant to picture what sin does. All sin pollutes us. All sin makes us unfit for God's presence. Now, I know that was really exciting stuff. If you had a hard time tracking with all of that in your head, take a look at that chart on on the backside of your bulletin. This is from uh, a theologian named Michael Morales. And notice the arrows that run along the top and bottom of that chart. So you see how sin can profane the holy and make it common. Sin can also pollute the clean and make it unclean. And then that top arrow goes in the other direction. So sacrifice cleanses the unclean and makes it clean. And sacrifice sanctifies the clean and makes it holy. This chart is really helpful for Understanding Leviticus and the whole setup here, and these categories of clean, unclean, and holy—they uh, remind us that again, that Leviticus is not an isolated set of rules. Leviticus is a set of solutions to problems. So, what are chapters eleven to fifteen about? Well, keep in mind, it's like this holy bubble has entered this sea of uncleanness. So the question is, how do you keep this holy bubble clean? The question is, how do you keep how do unclean people enter into this holy bubble and not end up like Nadab and Abihu? God actually wants to be near His people. God wants His people to be holy. But how does that happen? We'll enter these instructions from chapters eleven to fifteen these instructions for how people would stay clean, these instructions for how people would be fit for God's presence. All right, those are our terms. Let's take a look at these actual instructions and we'll head into chapters 11 to 15. Now I know what you might be thinking, you might be thinking, boy, I am not really thrilled about reading a set of instructions. And I get it, I can sympathize. But we believe these chapters are given by God. And at the same time, though, these chapters can feel like the ones that are among the most foreign to us when we read the Bible. That's why we started with the forest and not with the trees. So you read chapters 11 to 15. If you get lost in any nitty-gritty details, remember the purpose behind these instructions. Remember the purpose behind all of Leviticus. All of these instructions are part of God's desire to be close to his people and for his people to be close to him. Now, no analogy is perfect, but you might think of these chapters like music scales. Anybody even who played the recorder back in fourth grade knows what music scales are. So music scales are not exciting on their own. I bet you would not pay money to go to Severance Hall to listen to someone play music scales. You wouldn't do that. But music scales serve a greater purpose. The pianist who masterfully plays Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, he had to master how to play music scales first, serve a greater purpose. So think of these chapters like a little like that. So at the 30,000 foot level, chapters 11 to 15, they have to do with boundaries for the Israelites' physical bodies. The chapters alternate between uncleanness that can come to them, Or uncleanness that can come from them. So chapter 11 deals with food. This is uncleanness that can come to them. God wants only the things that are clean to go into their bodies. Chapter 12 talks about fluids that come after childbirth. This is uncleanness that comes from our bodies, not to them. Chapters 13 and 14 are like the Dr. Pimple Popper chapters. They talk about skin diseases. This is uncleanness that comes to you, that appears outside of your body, on the surface. And then chapter 15, alternate again, uncleanness that comes from us, keeps the pleasant topics going and talks about various bodily discharges. So again, this is uncleanness that comes from us. So just taking a look at the 30,000-foot level of these chapters, there's a lot of stuff that could make them unclean. It reminds me that God is not the God of positive vibes only. A lot of people say that. God is brutally honest about the world that we live in. We live in a world of death and disease. And these realities constantly affect us. These realities constantly damage us. And death and disease should remind us of all the ways that rebellion against God has unleashed curse upon the world. And so here in these chapters, God tells them about all the stuff that will separate them from him. So these chapters are lovely. God wants to stay close to his people, and so he gives them instructions. So let's take a look. Start with chapter 11. Chapter 11 deals with food, uncleanness that can come to them, from outside of them and go mm-hmm. into them. So, God organizes the instructions about food very purposefully. He sums it up at the end of the chapter. You look at chapter 11, verse 46. He says, This is the law about the beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every living creature that swarms on the ground. So, in this chapter, here's the order how it goes it's organized. First, we get land animals, then, we get sea creatures, and then, we get air animals. Does this order sound familiar at all? Well, it should. It's the same order from creation, Genesis 1 to 2. So it's another small reminder that what we're dealing with here in the tabernacle is a place where God is present like a new Eden. This is like the beginning of a new creation. So if you look at the land animals, verses 1 to 8, God tells them that they can eat anything that meets two criteria anything that's cloven footed and that chews the cud. So that means they can't have any more than two digits on each of their feet. And chewing the cut probably means that they chew their food thoroughly. So for the sea creatures, verses 9 to 12, God tells them that they can can eat anything that meets two criteria. For the sea creatures, they have to have fins and they have to have scales. So people from Boston, if they were around back then, would be very sad because they could not eat their lobster and they could not eat their chowder. So... For the air animals Verses 13 to 20 God starts with birds Instead of meeting certain criteria God lists specific birds that they were to avoid And then God goes on to insects Because yes, apparently Israelites ate insects as well So they can eat the ones with wings And have four legs to use To hop around So here you go, here's their diets That's just a little summary Now you might be thinking what I thought after reading this chapter. Uh, You might be thinking of uh, your favorite one-word question when you were a kid. Why? Why why is this here? And the response we might think from God could be a parent's favorite four-word answer. Because I said so. Is it as simple as that? Is it as simple as these instructions are here because God said so? Well, we should trust God enough to do what he says even when we can't fully understand it. But I think chapter 11 shows us some of the rationale behind what animals are clean and what animals are unclean. So you combine all of them together, whether it's land animals, fish, or insects. The animals that are clean are the animals that behave normally for the class they're in. So you see this if you spotted it, especially in how the animals move around. So the animals with cloven hoofs, or the fish with fins, or the insects with hopping legs, all of them move in a way that fits their class, that's normal to their class. So in this way, God could remind his people that they should live and move within the norms and boundaries that he's given to them. And there's at least one other visible rationale behind these distinctions and these instructions. We see it in God's prohibitions on what birds they couldn't eat. They couldn't eat birds of prey. We see it in prohibitions God gives about touching animal carcasses. God wants them to avoid anything that's associated with death. So, because that's to be associated with death is to be far from the God of life. So maybe those are couple of reasons we can see why these distinctions. But let's say you and I were Israelites in the wilderness back in Sinai. I know it would be crazy when it thousands of miles away, thousands of years before. But if we were Israelites in Sinai, we've gotten a new start. We've even gotten a new Eden, and we anticipate so much more to come. But then we hear instructions like Leviticus chapter 11. And you might be curious. Look at all this stuff that God's keeping us from. We can't eat shrimp. We can't eat ostrich eggs. We can't even eat rock badgers. Now, it would be ironic if we thought that way, because that's how they thought at the first Eden, too. Because you remember that Eve fell for Satan's ploy about how restrictive and how stingy God is and he'd forgotten how generous God had been. Even here, look at how much they could still eat. I mean, how many different fish does this qualify under? How many different ways can you eat beef? But ever since the fall, you and I have told ourselves that boundaries, especially boundaries from God, are bad. We've told ourselves that true freedom is the absence of any boundary and the absence of any restraint. That true freedom is not having any boundary and that true freedom is being your true self with no boundaries. My friend, that's a lie. You can never live without boundaries. If you try to, you will simply be enslaved to your own appetites and those will be your boundaries. True freedom is living within the good, generous, and life-giving boundaries that God has placed upon us. And so chapter 11's food instructions should remind us of that. So let's continue in our overview of these instructions. Chapter twelve. Chapter twelve talks about uncleanness that comes from within us, not that comes to us. the chapter twelve talks about fluids from um, fluids and blood from childbirth. Now you might reasonably say, "I thought childbirth was a good thing. Life is a precious gift that God even told His people to be fruitful and multiply." But throughout this very short chapter, we're told that it's not the baby who makes mom unclean, although babies will get their moms dirty. (laughs) Rather, notice, especially like in verse 7, it's the blood that makes mom unclean. Verse 7 says, then then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. So it's yet another reminder of sin's effects on the world. The very process that brings about life is tainted with death. Blood is a symbol of life throughout Leviticus, throughout the Bible. And any loss of blood is like a loss of life. And a continual loss of blood will lead to death. And so they are, at least ceremonially, unclean. A couple other notes on chapter 12. uh, it, It says a woman would be unclean for a longer duration if she had a girl than if she had a speculating about this, but it could be that because it's because a girl will be able to lose blood and menstruation when she comes of age. Chapter fifteen, we'll talk about that. Another note is that Mary and Joseph followed this chapter, Leviticus twelve, when Mary, after Mary gave birth to Jesus. That Mary and Joseph gave two turtle doves instead of a lamb is yet another detail that Jesus would. All right, on to chapters 13 to 14, but just a quick glance back out of the forest and not just at the individual trees. Remember, God gives these instructions so that he can be near his people and his people can be near him. God gives these instructions so that his people can stay clean, and to stay clean is to stay within God's norms. To stay clean is to stay near life. To stay clean is to remain whole. So chapters 13 and 14 are instructions about how to get clean or stay clean. They deal with various skin diseases, but you'll notice one word repeats a lot in these chapters. It's the word leprosy. This is not the leprosy of modern day. This is more of a catch-all term, referring to all kinds of skin diseases. And towards the end of chapter 14, you're going to see that these chapters of Deal with what appears to be mold and mildew, and it tells the priests to address these problems as best as they can. No one caught that dad joke, okay? Um, So chapter 13. Chapter 13 repeats a process for diagnosing and treating various skin diseases. So it starts with a person going to the priest, and you can probably hear the commercial now who says, if you have moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, ask your priest if you are unclean. <laughs> so chapter 13, verse two, it would be like, hey, Aaron, I got this rash that I need you to look at. And Aaron has the great job of being able to look at rashes all day. So then verse three, the priest inspects the infection. And then the chapter lists various symptoms and the priest will diagnose based on those symptoms. So the symptoms that are recognized as unclean are discoloring of the surface, an infection that infects a part of a person, not all of a person, an infection that is deeper than surface level, and an infection that is actively spreading. Now, why would these particular symptoms make somebody unclean? Why would these be called unclean? There is a hygienic element to this. A good outcome from quarantining someone with an actively spreading rash is that it doesn't spread to other people. But also remember what it means to be clean. To be clean is to be pure, to be filled with life, and to be whole. So when somebody has patchy skin, or persistently patchy skin, they have lack of wholeness. So their people's skin was to be like the animals that they sacrificed. They were to have no blemishes. This is meant to picture the kind of spiritual life that God wants for his people. A life of wholeness and integrity. A life with no hidden blemishes. Now, sometimes a priest will examine somebody and they won't be able to tell if they're unclean or not. This happens in verses four and five. If that happens, the person quarantines for a week, they get re-examined by the priest a week later. Other times, a person won't need a priest to examine them. Look at chapter 13, verses 40 to 41. This is good news for some of us men here. Baldness was not a sign being unclean. But there will be times when the priest pronounces someone unclean from a skin disease. So when that happens, the next instructions are chapter 13, verses 45 to 46. Want you to follow along as I read these because these this is especially important background to when Jesus goes and touches a leper, right? Chapter thirteen, verses forty-five to forty-six. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, "Unclean, unclean!" He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside. Remember, remember that clarification. A person's sin doesn't always cause the uncleanness. But uncleanness always symbolizes what sin does to us. Always shows what sin does to us. So the actions of verses 45 and 46 are actions you do when you're mourning someone's death. So this person is walking around like they are of the living dead. And going outside the camp, this is the place that was meant to be furthest from God's presence. This is like a reenactment of what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden. They're booted out of it. So, all of this, verses 45 and 46, this is a dramatic demonstration of what happens as a result of sin. This is a dramatic demonstration of what happens when you live life on your own terms. A dramatic demonstration of what happens when our sin is not dealt with. It leads to death and it leads to permanent banishment from God's presence. Now we go to chapter 14. Chapter 14 runs through an elaborate process of how someone is restored to the camp. So God doesn't want these people to be outside his presence forever. He wants them to be restored. So once a person is cured, which might take a long time, a person is cleansed from uncleanness through sacrifice. Again, see that chart in the bulletin. And throughout these chapters, to be atoned for is to be brought back from the realm of death. And one very sweet verse that comes in chapter 14, or sweet verses, are verses 21 and 22. I want you to read those. Of that. Follow along as I read those. Chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. It says, but if he is poor and cannot afford so much, is poor and cannot afford so much, that he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for him, and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, and a log of oil, also two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. But one shall be a sin offering, and the other a burnt offering. These are such sweet verses. A provision like this would remind them that both rich people and poor people got sick and unclean. A provision like this shows that God desires all people to be restored to Him. A provision like this reminds them that God shows no partiality, that restoration is not reserved only for those who can afford it. And it reminds us today still that you do not have to buy your forgiveness, you do not have to buy your way out of judgment. God has provided that through His Son. All you do is receive. And finally, just rounding third heading home. Chapter 15 returns to uncleanness that can come from within us. And this time it deals with bodily fluids that might make us blush. So why would any of these things make us unclean? Again, it relates to what's associated with death. Dr. Jim Hamilton explains, with these discharges, something that's part of your living body is no longer in your living body. So as a result, you are brought into contact with things that are no longer alive, but are dead. And where God is, there can only be life. So here are all these instructions about how to stay clean and get clean, how you can be fit for God's presence.
1: So every time the Israelites
0: sat down for a meal, every time the Israelites got sick, Every time the Israelites added a child to their number, there was potential for uncleanness and an opportunity for obedience. These instructions are thorough. These instructions touch so many parts of their lives. So if they don't remember the purposes behind these instructions, then all they'll be able to think about is how burdensome and inconvenient these instructions are. Now, I know we've already talked about God's purposes behind these instructions a little bit, but I want to show you them. I want to show you two places, one at the beginning, one at the end of these chapters, that would keep Israel anchored in going forward with these instructions. First place is chapter 11, verses 44 to 45. Really important. Chapter 11, verses 44 to 45. It says, for I am the Lord your God, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. These verses remind us God has already made the Israelites his own. God has already delivered them. God has already saved them. Now he wants to make them holy. Now he wants to set them apart. Now he wants to make them like him. And that's going to show up in how they live. That's even going to show up in how they eat. Gordon Wenham says this, every time the Israelites ate, they distinguished clean from unclean animals. This means every time they ate, they are reminded that God distinguished them from all the other nations. And if at times there doesn't seem to be a reason for why certain foods are clean and certain foods are unclean, well, there's no apparent reason why God chose Israel and not another nation. So they should pre-choice. God loved them because he chose to love them. That's what we read in Deuteronomy 7. So chapter 11, verses 44 to 45, means that every meal should remind Israel about what God did for them and how God now calls them to live. Second place we see purpose behind these instructions. Another anchor comes at the end of these chapters. Chapter 15, verse 31 Chapter 15, verse 31, which says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So we've noticed God's heart throughout these chapters. This is another important thing to keep in mind. God's instructions always reveal God's character in his heart. God gives these instructions in order for his people to be close to him. God desires his people to be restored to him, to have deeper fellowship with him. That's the goal of holiness, to be close to God. But all this uncleanness should press upon them and us the infinite chasm that exists between us and between God. Yes, God desires us to be close to him, but there is a deep danger in being unclean for the unapproachably majestic God. And these instructions, God tells Israel that they cannot approach him just as they are and be okay. They need to be made clean. So it's getting to be lunchtime. So should you look to Leviticus chapter 11 to decide what we should eat? Because we got some pork downstairs. <laughs> and you might really be craving some rock badger for dinner So are you allowed to eat it? Are you allowed to enjoy a a great spicy meatball afterwards? I don't think they're that spicy. But (laughs) coming to the close of our time, we have to ask what all of us might have wondered throughout this. Are these instructions still relevant? No and yes. No and yes. The individual instructions themselves aren't quite relevant anymore. Largely because we don't live in an ancient Near Eastern nomadic village society. These instructions are for a specific people in a specific situation. Individual instructions aren't relevant not only because we live in a different time, a different place, but also because we live under a different covenant as Christians. We live under a different covenant. So it's going to help us to define our terms. A helpful definition of covenant is a relational bond between two parties which typically has obligations, blessings, and curses, and is often sealed by an oath. The instructions in Leviticus 11-15 come under the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant with Moses or the covenant made at Sinai. Jesus has fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant, not just a part of it, not just some of it, but all of it, and Jesus has actually brought a better and new covenant. So, for example, Leviticus 14, the priest could only pronounce lepers clean. Jesus can actually make unclean people holy just by a touch, not just pronounce it. So, in the Mosaic Covenant, God saved and set apart one nation for himself. And that nation would show their identity and their calling through how they lived, even through how they ate. So God intended that nation's holiness to be a light to the nations around them so that one day they too would become holy. But that's not what happened. So God sent his son to be faithful where his people were faithless. Jesus' sinless holiness allows him to approach God's presence and his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross means that he could save anyone who believes, not just those from one nation. Those from any nation This is the new and the better covenant And the new covenant God's people aren't those from just one nation They are all those who belong to his son So this means God's people No longer need to distinguish themselves From other nations Through what they eat That's the point Jesus made to Peter In Acts chapter 10 Peter you don't have to separate yourself From Gentiles anymore I came to save both Jews and Gentiles Peter, the difference between clean and unclean foods is as irrelevant as the difference between Jewish and Gentile Christians. We live under a new and better covenant. So while these individual instructions might no longer be that relevant, the purposes behind them are. They still show God's character, and we can still follow Jesus as he's fulfilled them. So yeah, God's people no longer live set apart and holy through what they eat, but we must still live set apart and holy By how we live The New Testament calls us to imitate Christ To have the mind of Christ Even to be holy As God is holy To live like God really has saved us And made us new So yeah, the individual instructions May no longer be that relevant But the purposes behind them are God gave these instructions So that his people wouldn't be struck dead we said it last week, we'll say it again. It is a miracle that we're not like Nadab and Abihu. It's a miracle that God hasn't struck us dead. Christ has taken the disheveled and smelly and unclean people and made them fit for God's presence. Jesus was struck dead. Jesus was banished outside the camp so that we can be cleansed, so that we can be restored to the camp. Now we have free and unlimited access to God's presence. In light of these chapters, that is an unbelievable gift. So my friend, if you do not trust in Christ, do not mistake God's patience with you, with God's approval, his patience and kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Turn to Christ and be cleansed. Turn to Christ and be reconciled to the God who made you. Believer in Jesus, I would just tell you, stop taking your privileges for granted. I would tell you very humbly, and it's a word for myself, to stop being bored, <laughs> to rejoice in the new covenant, to rejoice in your status as permanently cleansed. And with God's help, I would say, live in a manner worthy, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And lastly, I would say, take heart that one day you will be like Christ. You won't just be clean in God's eyes, you will actually be clean and freed from sin. Now one day, Ephesians 5 says, that Christ will present you to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and you will be holy and without blemish. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that by your blood, by your sacrifice, you have made us cause us to leave today with hearts filled with new appreciation from your word of how precious this gift is. That we are permanently clean. That we sinful, unclean people are now made fit for God's presence because of what you've done for us. But Lord, we need help. Help us to live out who you've made us to be. Help us to live holy to live set apart, to live distinct, loving, and humble lives from the world. And it's our prayer that more would be made fit for God's presence through Christ. So God, help us in this time. Glorify your name.